welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 66, recorded on April 2nd, 2020, or as I call it, Quarantine Day 1532, the Cloud Pod rebrands itself as Pod. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. How's it going? Hanging in there. Yeah, it's going okay, given the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm finally glad we're in April. I didn't, I didn't think we'd ever get there. It's kind of, as I see it, this is just dog days of, of summer, but in, in fall and spring, whatever this is. <laughs> I can't keep track anymore. Uh, well, I did bring a guest onto the show today. Uh, Ryan's here to join us. Uh, Ryan, I don't think you've seen Peter in forever, but we've, we've seen you many, many times. What's up? Welcome back, Ryan. I am happy to be here. Um, desperate for social contact. So um, even though it's virtual, you're maintaining social distance over the interwebs. I'm happy to be here and, and be on the show with you guys. You know, you could kind of say the, cl- the cloud pod was very hipster in that way. We, you know, we were social distancing from episode one. We've been doing it before it was cool. <laughs> miles. Tens of miles. Tens of miles. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, you know, we're, we're all here extending into May 3rd now for our... Uh, our shelter in place and uh it's uh definitely been busy but you know it has not been quiet in the cloud space which is nice uh, all these uh, techies out there working on the cloud from their homes have uh, delivered a lot of a lot of great content and features so a lot to cover this evening uh, so let's uh let's get into it so the first one is uh our good friends over at spotinst have uh, decided to rebrand themselves as spot uh is really <laughs> yeah pretty rough <laughs> Uh, Spot uh, launched in 2015, making it easy for companies to optimize their clouds, computing spend uh, across multiple providers in order to save them money. Uh, They apparently think they use AI-powered software to intelligently manage, provision, and orchestrate spare capacity to help its customers take better advantage of cheaper compute resources, and that's by just using the Spot market. I struggle a little bit when they say AI-powered on this one, but, you know, hey, they just came up with the name Spot, so I I give them credit for trying. (laughs) You called it rough. Was that a was that a pun? It was on spot. Spot the dog. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it just reminds me of all the, the financial uh, predictions that you see. It's always there's always a little side note that says previous performance, or there's no indication of future performance. And so, like the AI model may be fantastic at telling you what happened yesterday, but I mean, if all of a sudden one of these providers starts using their own spare capacity for something else and, and blows the spot market up. It's, you know, they have no way of predicting that. It's a marketing buzzword. Yeah, well, and, and at the end of the day, you know, most of the smarts for spot, like fleets and all kind of stuff, is now part of AWS. And so really they're just giving you the automation layer to make it easier to adopt spot and transfer between EC2 and not EC2. So I, the AI, I, I struggle with a little bit, but if someone from spot or spot inst, uh, is out there and can tell me how you're using AI. I would love to have you on the show for you to explain that to me because I don't, I don't quite get the marketing. Well, AI is just a whole bunch of nested if statements, right? So I guess so. If termination single signal, yeah, launch yeah. new spot. <laughs> so now you, uh, now they've joined the world of uh, companies you cannot Google for. So you know, good luck to you finding documentation on spot, uh, and I hope you all the best. But uh, you know, good for them. I, I, we, I think we commented on the show before that spot is kind of a stupid name. I don't know that I think the new one's better, but uh, I appreciate that they're trying. It's four letters better. Well, you know, moving on to the uh, national tragedy that is COVID-19, uh, there's a bunch of updates in the world uh, around cloud that we thought we'd share with you guys. So first, uh, Slack is uh, continuing to rocket past uh, their previous records uh, with a billion usage minutes per day. 
uh, after they added 9,000 new customers. I think when we recorded last week, they had 7,000. So uh, now they've added 2,000 in a couple of weeks. Uh, Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack, said uh, he's still cautioning investors that Slack likely won't be able to capable of providing an accurate projection for how the coronavirus pandemic will affect its business at least any, uh, anytime soon. We literally have no idea what is going to happen, and neither does anyone else, really. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Nostradamus. Yeah, what? That's, a, that's an honest statement, though. I love it. Yeah. What's a usage minute for Slack? I mean, if, if I've got the client open up and I'm not typing or reading messages, is that still clocking up the counter or what? I don't know what that, I don't know. Hold on a second. That's a good question. It's got to be, right? It can't just be type. It can't just be sending. It's got to be app open on your box. That's dumb. I don't know if it's that or not. I mean, it, those metrics are defined somehow. So I'm sure if you go find their uh, S1 filing from when they're going to go public, you could probably figure this out. I mean, I guess if, if they're comparing like a previous number that, with the same method of measurement to the current number, then, then that, that's okay because at least you've got some kind of ratio. But I don't know, usage minutes for a asynchronous communication tool is kind of, yeah, whatever. Well, the app tracks, you know, whether you're available or not based on the idleness of your computer, like, it, like most apps. And so I, I think they can come up with at least some number. Of... It's pretty synchronous too. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, though, what happens to Zoom and Teams and Slack usage after we all go back to the office. And does, you know, do these record numbers continue? Do these companies that paid for contracts, do they continue to renew them? It's going to be interesting. I, I was thinking about, you know, executives and stuff on our company who were not really big Slack users before who are now on it all the time. Will they continue to be on it all the time after we're done with this? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I, when I got on Slack, it totally changed my behavior. I, I wouldn't be surprised if at least a significant portion of the people who have been forced uh, into it now are basically used to it. And now it's part of their workflow and they're, they love it. Yeah. These companies that, you know, global companies have been doing this for a long time because it was really the only way to sustain communications across the globe was to use this kind of asynchronous out of band communication forms. And so smaller businesses that are now having to disperse locally are now catching up there. So I, I do think that this is going to be sticky. Um, at least I'm, you know, fingers crossed because I'm, I'm for this working pattern. But I think it'll be interesting. I keep seeing all the uh, all the time killer apps that people want to install in Slack these days, like tic-tac-toe, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of these uh, people are looking for entertainment in any way they can find it. So, so I should stop requesting those apps? Is, is you're just <laughs> going to deny them? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, I'm not in charge of denying or approving those, so I, I don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, the one thing I think has been interesting as far as integrations is, you know, a lot of big platforms have integrations with Slack. And um, a lot of times when you look at how the security model works, uh, they're really quite scary, especially if you have shared channels with third parties and, and others where other basically users can effectively have full access to the entire platform that's integrated with it. The thing I thought was most interesting about Slack and those app integrations is, you know, think about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were kind of dumb terminals, green screens, and you did everything with keystrokes. And then we started to get GUIs, and then we had, you know, terminals running in GUIs, and then we started being point and click for everything. And now we've kind of come full circle again because now people are building apps um, that plug into Slack to, to perform shortcuts like, you know, slash Zoom to start a meeting. Yeah. And it's, it's like we suddenly realize that actually typing five letters is faster than going click, 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 click. Next thing you know, people will agree that code is better than no code. <laughs> <laughs> and centralized compute will be better than distributed compute. I mean, I go, we go through these circles all the time. 
I do wish uh, app integrations were, were more affordable on Slack, though. That's, that's my only criticism. I mean, if you have the enterprise, you get as many as you want to, but you're also paying them a small uh, uh, country yes. in, in the east somewhere. Per user. Yeah. Per user, yeah. It's pretty expensive. I'm, I'm, I wonder if they're, they're still giving out uh, decent discounts to enterprises who are signing up like in the last couple of weeks. I mean, if, if kind of got, got them over a barrel right now. Having had to negotiate a Slack enterprise deal, I will tell you, they don't give you discounts. <laughs> very, very small. Not even to entice your business? Like, get not you even, in? Not even to entice your business. Wow. I like that. Just no dicker sticker. Everyone pays the same. The only deal I ever got from them was when Atlassian sold them all the HipChat IP. Uh, there was a sweetheart deal you got for the first year. Uh, then after that, you paid full price. So, yeah, it's, it's rough. Uh, you know, the joy of government contracting and all that, you can't, you can't give people special pricing. Uh, Peter and I talked a little bit last week about uh, some struggles in the Azure cloud, especially in the UK, where they were... Uh, not, didn't have some of the instance types, and you know we had talked about. But most of that's a non-story. You know it happens all the time where you know you you misspell the you know the the comma in your spreadsheet, and you ordered not enough servers for your cloud, and so that it happens. Capacity planning is <laughs> hard. Uh, but you know the thing that was interesting was that they they mentioned that you know there's a prioritization that Azure has uh, for how they deploy and how they prioritize people who need compute, and so they said that you know, government agencies and healthcare providers would get preferential treatment, which is fine, unless you're paying Azure a lot of money to have capacity for you that isn't going to be there because they're giving someone else. Uh, Microsoft has come out and further clarified that, and they have announced that they are using their prioritization rules in place uh, due to COVID-19. And basically, this quote here says, we're implementing a few temporary restrictions designed to balance the best possible experience for all of our customers. We have placed limits on free offers to prioritize capacity for existing customers. We also have limits on certain resources for new subscriptions. These are soft quota limits, and customers can raise support requests to increase these limits. If requests cannot be met immediately. We recommend customers use alternative regions of our 54 live regions that may have least demand, less demand surge. To manage surges in demand, we will expedite the creation of new capacity in the appropriate region, uh, which basically means if you're on the free tier, uh, you're shit out of luck. So given the context of uh, the, the virus, what, uh, you know, who suddenly started to use Azure? <laughs> I think and it's why? more along the lines of their normal purchasing, hardware purchasing has been interrupted. Like it's hard to get hardware right now i think we talked about the uh the home office in the uk right who chose asia as their cloud provider or, or something maybe that was aws i don't remember but anyways but there are government agencies and there's there's people who are responding to this thing that are using asia i'm sure you know healthcare providers hipaa uh you know there's a lot of stuff that is on microsoft cloud and so i think those people are ramping up resources to handle the testing and the demands and all that and they're running out of capacity or they, or they can't resupply us the stock capacity they have because the supply chain's broken. One of the two. Wait, no. If they didn't buy stuff from Amazon, they might may, may uh, have a better chance. <laughs> now I think That's Ryan's. Fair. I think Ryan's right there. It's probably. It's probably. Uh, you know, they're not going to want to keep a bunch of stock on the shelf. So it's going to be just in time deliveries. Factories closing in China is going to be pretty impactful, I would think. Well, and, and even just the fact that you know shipping from the U.S. to Europe maybe slowed down just because of COVID concerns, and there's all kinds of things happening in logistics supply chain right now, which is a problem. Shipping from the U.S. to the U.S. has concerns. I tried to order a book for and have it delivered to my mom so she could uh, make use of the uh, the time we have right now to get better at using her new Mac laptop, and it was like April 23rd oh, wow. is the expected delivery date for a paperback book. Where, where is she? Millbrae. Okay. I did some stuff recently. It came like three days, so it's weird. Very yeah, no, I heard, I heard the same thing with uh, a friend in Sacramento who uh, couldn't get some like other equipment shipped to his house. It was a month out. 
Wow. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks, you know, shipping from Amazon was definitely slower. I wasn't getting my two day prime, but I was getting at least like three or four days. And then for about three or four days there, everything was out like three weeks. And now it's kind of come back in. It's it's more reasonable again now. But uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely struggling. But then, you know, I ordered some stuff from another vendor and it was here in two days. So it, mm-hmm. I think Amazon's was really backlog because everyone's ordering their stuff from Amazon. And that's definitely causing some pain. Um, but yeah, it's good for Amazon. I bet their earnings are. In pretty good oh shape. my god yeah <laughs> i can only imagine between how much money between this cloud and the and the amazon.com store i bet they're going to be doing uh, quite well so but then of course that'll mess them up in q2 next year when they you know <laughs> they see a contraction of like 35 percent or something crazy <laughs> uh well uh you know the other thing we talked about last week a little bit was uh the the meteoric rise of zoom and how popular zoom was being all the schools were choosing it because zoom had provided to them free uh you know access for classroom learning and so ninety thousand schools across 20 countries had taken them up on that offer uh but unfortunately you know (laughs) great success also brings a lot of scrutiny and so uh there's been a lot of attacks this week on zoom particularly around uh then all new users and use cases have been kind to Zoom. Uh, a lot of security researchers, privacy advocates, and users are complaining. Zoom bombing has become a common verb out there in the world, which is uh, basically the, the act of a prankster joining a Zoom call uh, and then broadcasting porn or shock videos in the middle of a call, which could be a classroom, <laughs> which is not so good. Uh, and that's all because of mm. some Zoom decisions where they you know, they use a random 9 to 11 digit uh, code to basically number their meeting room. If you don't have passwords set up on that, then you, know, you can just basically guess with brute force what the password might be. And if you're just out there trolling classrooms, you know, it doesn't really matter. If you know the people or not, you're just trying to make people disrupt things. That's what trolls do. Uh, FBI has even come out with issued a warning that the default settings are not secure. Uh, and then one of the bigger issues is that they advertise end-to-end encryption, but in fact, they've now clarified that they only offer transport encryption end-to-end. Uh, and so that was a mistake, and that was a pretty hot button. And then apparently they have a feature uh, which allows you to enable attendee tracking uh, that lets meeting hosts track whether participants have their Zoom app in view on a PC or whether it's simply in the background not being paid attention to. Uh, and then several concerns around some of the plugins they had for Facebook and others that were sending a lot of data back to Facebook. And then some malware concerns on how they launch macOS apps, uh, you know, basically the same way a malware package would do it. Uh, and Zoom CEO Eric S. Uh, said that it's not easy to start a meeting on Mac, and it's a point taken, and they will continue to improve that uh, soon. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, very interesting because their appeal has been a simple approach to video conferencing. Uh, but unfortunately, that seems to be their downfall right now as everyone's getting a really good view of their privacy situation. Isn't it, isn't it weird, right? I mean, everyone's got a phone number. Anyone can call any phone number and say, <laughs> leave offensive messages or do anything else. It's just, it's no different. It's just a, it's yeah, just it's a video. A different. It's not different. It's, a it's exactly different. the same. <laughs> I, can't, I can't put a password on my phone. And it, I mean, it's a little different me. than what you're going to see and hear and or hear. Well... I mean, if you don't use the, the the security tools that are available to you, then uh, what do you expect? I mean, yeah. again, I think it's, this is the, always the big argument of defaults. Are the defaults too promiscuous? And you have to know what you're doing. And you're you're literally onboarding thousands of people who've never used this product before, and they don't know that they should be enabling meeting passwords and that kind of stuff. No, I mean, maybe maybe 9 to 11 digits is, is too short. Maybe it should be 32 digits. Sure. I mean, that would definitely help some, but that's still up security through obscurity. Where you know a passcode on top of that, you know that only the people in your meeting know is helpful. I think they fixed this as well. Like I, I set up several clients today with Zoom meetings, and it was all password protected by default. So well, I, I know, I, I know what our it is. Yep, I know our enterprise. We we enabled passwords for all new meetings. So 
Uh, I know we forced it at the at the organizational level. But if you send, if you if you actually copy the link, if you if you copy a link from the meeting and an email to somebody, the password is embedded in the URL. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, that, but that's but what that, I noticed as well. Yeah, but that's that's very common. Like WebEx has that, and so do others. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a normal thing. It's really that you know the people who you want to be in the meeting you know, have this extra level of security, they can't just guess the meeting ID. And it's just like any kind of um, access token that you get. It's just a big, long, random number. It just needs to be bigger and longer and so that less less guesses are actually valid. <laughs> yeah, so it's bigger and longer. <laughs> Obviously, bigger and longer are much harder to guess. <laughs> Keep digging. First step to get out of a hole, stop digging. <laughs> hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. After all this backlash, uh, Zoom was forced to write a public statement about this on their blog, which they did yesterday on the uh, April Fool's Day. Uh, and basically, you know, they talked about their massive growth in 90,000 schools. Uh, they said in December 2019, at the end of the month, the maximum number of daily meeting participants free and paid was approximately 10 million. But in March, they had reached more than 200 million daily meeting participants, both free and paid. So that's over... 20x uh, increase in traffic, so that's pretty significant. Um, they did. He did mention that you know originally it was designed for enterprise customers with large IT organizations that knew what they were doing, and uh, you know those companies had done security reviews, but you know clearly it wasn't enough, uh, and that these new consumer use cases and education use cases are new for them, and they're learning as they go and trying to make them much much better and more secure. They've responded by announcing a bunch of new training to help new users learn how to use the security features, a bunch of quick starts for educators to help them set up their classrooms and make sure they don't have these issues with Zoom bombing. And then uh, they've fixed some of the privacy issues and they have announced a new uh, code freeze that they're going to now focus nothing about trust, safety, and privacy for the foreseeable future and not do any future releases for the next 90 days. So they're going to be hyper-focused on these issues and anything being reported by the security community uh, I want to address that as they go. They also are announcing a new bug bounty program. Uh, and every Wednesday, you can join a webinar with their CEO who hosts uh, an update on both privacy and security updates each week if you're that interested. So there you go. So I think it's more about how these companies react to the scrutiny. You know, they so sure, you know, there's a there's a spotlight on Zoom right now because they're a, you know, their popularity is through the roof and a lot of people, a lot more people are using them. But their reaction, like as long as these are more than just words, and it seems like it is with the, the CEO having a presence on a weekly thing and the bug bounty, there's typically money behind that. Um, this, you know, these actions are, I think, speak louder. You know, you can have security flaws, but, you know, how quickly do you react to fixing them, I think, is more important. I, I hope they release a blog uh, about their infrastructure and how easily they manage to scale from 10 million to 200 million. I would love to read that. I would too. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know they're Amazon yeah. partners, so um, 
I mean, we know we, we're familiar with the tools that they have available to them, but it's it's um, having tools available and actually making good use of them are two totally different things. <laughs> and they really haven't taken a lot of hits for you know. There's been some some rough edges as far as like latency and in some some issues there, but they haven't been down. They haven't had any major incidents where the service didn't to scale that much that quickly. It's pretty impressive. I'd say it's almost the opposite. I saw a lot of people moving from competing platforms to Zoom because they had heard through the grapevine that they were holding up to the stress. Yeah, it was interesting. I was on, you know, we're, we're in the transitionary period from WebEx to Zoom. We were doing that before all this happened. But, um, you know, we still have some lingering Zoom, uh, WebEx calls that we're still joining. And so I was on a Zoom, WebEx yesterday or the day before, and the call quality was terrible. And I was like, man, I like it sounds like I'm in a tin can for part of it. It was bad. You know, so there's definitely scaling challenges out there that are happening in the space. Um, but, you know, you had to wonder definitely on Zoom's case, you know, are they using Twilio to get dial ID numbers and calling people? Because, like, the thing that I think would prevent you from scaling to 10 million to 200 million users is the phone numbers. Like Amazon, they're using Amazon Connect. I'm sure they are. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure they're using a bunch of stuff. But, I mean, how many how many phone numbers is Amazon sitting on and how many phone numbers is Twilio sitting on that they have, you know, the ability to grab that many that quickly? It's it's impressive. Yeah. Well, well, I definitely hope to see maybe a Velocity Talk or some other conference where they talk about scale. and. And they talk about it because I think it'd be interesting. I do know they also have a private data center, I heard, as well. So they have a bit of both uh, cloud and non-cloud. All right, moving on to Amazon News. Uh, there's a new low-cost HDD, or magnetic disk, storage option for Amazon FSx for Windows File Server. Uh, before, you only could use SSD disk uh, to provide the highest performance latency-sensitive workloads like databases, media processing, analytics needed. Uh, HD storage designed for a broad spectrum of workloads, including home directories, departmental shares, and content management systems. Uh, a single AZ uh, magnetic storage is priced at uh, basically a penny per gigabyte per month, and a multi-AZ HD storage is about uh, 0.02 or two pennies, uh, two and a half pennies uh, per gigabyte per month. Uh, this now makes FSx for Windows the lowest cost file storage for Windows apps and workloads on the Amazon cloud. And they also have a data deduplication feature in this as well, which can save you additional 50% uh, if you're using 50% as a reasonable reference point. Uh, you can achieve cost optimizations of uh, a half of a penny or uh, basically a penny and a quarter per gigabyte per month for multi-AZ. So that's uh, pretty impressive. It is impressive. It's not, the, the storage cost isn't the whole story, though. I mean, it, it's, if, if you don't need high throughput, then, yeah, it's really cheap. But if you want, you know, 16, 32, 64 megabits a second of throughput, then you pay uh, $4.50 per mega, megabit second per month. So it's not, not as cheap as all that, but it's still pretty cool. Still pretty cheap. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the example that I saw was 5 terabytes of storage, 16 megabits a second, which is probably fast enough for any, you know, uh, website, you know, um, CMS type thing. And it was going to be uh, $450 a month. I wish they'd uh, come out with something like this for uh, EFS. Because, <laughs> well, this is really great for Windows. I, I run the Windows, Linux boxes, and I like to have native NFS capability. So I'd love to, a cheaper version of NFS as well. But maybe in the future we'll get that too. All right, the uh, AWS IAM Access Analyzer uh, is now available for you in organizations. So at reInvent, they announced the IAM Access Analyzer. 
that helps you access resources by analyzing permissions granted using policies for things like S3 buckets, IAM roles, KMS, SQS queues, etc. Uh, this now allows you to use automated reasoning and form of mathematical login interference to determine all possible access paths allowed by a resource policy. Uh, now that you can do this at the organizational level, you can delegate member accounts with an entire organization or as, uh, set up a zone of trust. Uh, that trust boundary can be then used to apply against these rules. And this is allowed to use, uh, sorry, this can be used to identify when resources in your organization can be accessed from outside of your Amazon organization. This sounds cool, but I'm not entirely sure why. So maybe one of you guys knows. Uh, I do, actually. So the way that this works is by doing a mathematical analysis on permissive access. And so it's, you know, there's mathematical proofs that, are, that power all these things. When you do it at the organization layer, what you're doing is actually saying everything in this organization's inside my circle of trust. So when you're doing that mathematical analysis, you can either exclude or include that analysis to your organization. Whereas previously, if you think about doing that for like, you know, for every singleton account, you had to basically say that this account, this other account that I also work in is blessed, right? Mm -hmm. So you had to do a lot of configuration to trust cross account access, mm -hmm. you know, normal levels of access. You had to, it's basically going to reduce the pulse, the, the, the false positives findings for, for everything inside your organization. And then there's the additional thing, which is you can configure and view centrally. So you can actually see if there are more permissive roles than you want. There are permissive access patterns out there. You can see them from a central place, either at your organization master payer account or a delegated account, like a security account. So this is, it's basically taking something that was like super cool, but not all that useful and making it really useful and, and centralizing it. So it feeds into security hub and guard duty as well. So it's, it's pretty rad. Doesn't the ability to whitelist all the accounts in your org sort of fly in the face a bit of uh, least privilege, though? You're not really whitelisting. I wouldn't say that you're whitelisting. What you're doing is you're you're saying that it's 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 analysis of risk, right? And and the amount of permissiveness of access and how risky it is. So you're not actually granting necessarily access, but if you've granted a least privileged role to an account, should that be an automatic finding? that this is more permissive because it's outside of your outside of your account or should it be so it still has to be least privileged you still have to grant least privileged stuff but when you're doing the analysis of is there a risk it's a little different of an analysis just another tool right that's, that's it's just fair. another tool yeah it's just another tool that amazon has to bring up to the org's level because they don't they didn't have a a better way to contain blast radius other than individual accounts and so now as an org we want these things that we want to be able to distinguish between our accounts and other people's accounts. Mm. I, I think that's fair in general. I think from my experience, one of the biggest problems of any kind of security tooling is just the noise, the extra noise, and make it, make, it makes it so hard to find the important pieces of information in, in, the, uh, in the data. So I guess by being able to ignore the lower-risk items, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, unless you focus on the, the things that may actually be worth looking at yeah i mean yeah especially you think about you know running a feed off of the events bridge that comes off of this and so it's like if you're finding you want to take an action based on permissive action you know in your account that's detected in a finding where you you know you remove that role or you remove all the permissions in that role or whatever you do like you're going to cause a whole bunch of damage but if you can do that within your org and just sort of ignore that because you know how how risky is a bad actor inside your org? Still risky, but you know the the it's a little less risky um, 
than having that exposed publicly. Amazon has released a third availability zone in the AWS Canada Central Region. Uh, AWS is announcing the third AZ to allow you to uh, have additional flexibility to architect scalable, fault-tolerant, and highly available applications and still support additional AWS services in Canada. Uh, this highlighted several customers who have adopted the new Canada region, including Aliacare, Aviva, and uh, Direct2Learn. And so this is a great thing. If you were only using those two availability zones before and you had a split-brain problem, you can now fix that with the third availability zone, uh, which is great. Finally get to run Mesos in Canada. I've been waiting so long. <laughs> it's a boot time. So. Nice. Did they say, sorry, we didn't have this sooner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, glad to always see a good, another AZ. That's always good. And then the uh, final Amazon story, the Amazon Detective is now on the case with the rapid security investigation and analysis capabilities. Uh, Amazon Detective was announced at reInvent uh, as a private preview that you could get into if you were so inclined. Uh, but now this is available to all. Uh, again, it's a fully managed service that empowers users to automate the heavy lifting involved in processing large quantities of AWS log data to determine the cause and impact of a security issue. Uh, it sucks in data from GuardDuty, CloudTrail, and VPC flow logs into a graph model that summarizes the resource behaviors, interactions of Observed now across your entire AWS environment. Uh, you can answer simple questions as, is this an unusual API call for this role? Or is this spike in traffic from an instance expected? Uh, and with no need to write code or to configure or tune your own queries. So there you go. This is automating away the security uh, analysts. Um, so that you know you used to have to like go over miles of logs and, and derive these patterns based off of usage. So that's difficult. I've done it a few times, you know, doing forensic analysis and it's no fun. Um, so this is, you know, something that's e an easy button for this. If you don't have a large security org of teams, you know, of people that can just pour over all your access API access logs and, and go, Oh, this isn't good. Yeah. This you know who doesn't have a huge sock team? Amazon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, they have these, because they have these kind of automations and they're now available to you. Uh, the same tooling that they probably are using internally. Maybe not Maybe not quite as finely tuned to what they need, but uh, definitely really nice to see. And you're coupling this with guard duty, security hub, and all the other technologies that come out with the last few years. The security stuff is getting pretty impressive. So mm -hmm. uh, definitely still interested to see what they come out with with Reinforce in June assuming that conference still happens. Uh, you know, I'm very curious to see, you know, the detective going GA now, maybe they have something really cool on their other sleeves, or maybe it'll be another letdown like it was last year. We'll see. Well, I just say if uh, other companies have people as smart as Ryan out there wasting their time trying to do this manually, they're probably going to be a lot better off when they repurpose them to do cooler stuff. Probably so. So we don't let them do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Every once in a while, he's like, you know, I, I think I could be really valuable in security. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Your skills will be wasted. Don't do that. <laughs> someday he'll, someday he'll fall to the dark side. Just, it's it just so yet. much fun. It's just it so is, much yeah. fun. It is fun. Well, uh, Google has a bunch of stuff going on here this week as well. The first one is they are trying to help out with the COVID-19 situation with the new COVID-19 public data set. Uh, this data plays, of course, a critical role in research, study, and com to combat public health emergencies. And now where is that more true than the case of the global crisis currently enveloping the world? Uh, this data set is, includes the John Hopkins Center for Science, Systems Science and Engineering, the Global Health Data World Bank, and the OpenStreetMap data 
free to access and query through BigQuery uh, for the foreseeable future. And there's a great quote here from Sam Skillman, head of engineering at Descartes Labs. Making COVID-19 data open and available in BigQuery will be a boon to researchers and analysis in the field. In particular, having queries be free will allow greater participation and the ability to quickly share results and analysis with colleagues and the public will accelerate our shared understanding of how the virus is spreading. Uh, so pretty nice and good to see BigQuery ML getting used for such a great purpose. Yeah, that Johns Hopkins data set is, is driving a lot of dashboards at the moment, which are available online, and, um, and they're, really, they're really cool and scary, but, but very cool. Especially scary as, the, as you know, the U.S. starts reporting up all their data, and you see it go across the east to the west coast, and you just see the numbers tick up. It's, uh, yeah, it's a little disconcerting. Yeah. The, uh, the, it's been... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was going to say they, they were watching the dashboard in the morning and night for for the past few days, like the the uh, the logarithmic growth of uh, of cases is just uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I think uh, now it's been pretty it's been pretty refreshing to see how uh, proactive and how generous the private sector has been during COVID. All sorts of cool things are getting donated and invented and uh, offered. Yeah, little things, you know, like easing restrictions on, you know, data caps or or offering these just just little things to make li people's lives easier. I agree 100 percent. This is it's very nice to see, you know, nothing drives people together like a crisis, but it's really nice to see that we're reacting that way where, you know, typically big businesses aren't perceived as being kind. Right. Yeah. Well, and there are these things that they would never have done in the past that they are just, they're doing and that, you know, it's having such a good goodwill for them that I think those companies will get benefits later on, which will really help them. So we will definitely see, I think they're all sort of hoping a little bit that, you know, the government will reimburse them for some of their help, but uh, you know, the reality is that may not happen. We'll see. Well, Google has uh, decided that their environment is very complex and that complexity may require something like service discovery or a service directory to allow you to find and identify components in your applications. And so they're introducing the new service directory uh, to manage all your services in one place at scale. Uh, enterprises, of course, rely on increasing number of heterogeneous services across cloud and on-premise environments. And customers want the ability to make a service rather than infrastructure-centric approach to connecting to Google Cloud services their own apps, and third-party partner services like GCP Marketplace products. Uh, the new managed solution is to help you publish, discover, and connect services in a consistent and reliable way, regardless of the environment and platform in which they are deployed. So there you go. Service discovery brought to you by Google, which is really nice. Yeah, I'm happy to see more of these services come online because it's it's difficult to run a service discovery um, service. That's mm -hmm. awkward to say, um, just because there, there's a lot of complexity, right? Each each different service that you're interacting with might have their own way. They want to interact a different way, uh, whether it be, you know, determining health checks of the service, publishing raw data, some sort of API driven model, and so it is complex to operate, and so and it's really handy to have. Is it is it really as complex as you're making it out to be, or is it that the Etsy D and Zookeeper are just that complicated? <laughs> is it really is it really the technologies that underpin the service discovery stuff versus the actual capability? I I still wonder that sometimes if it's yeah. the uh, the method to the madness is actually where the problem is, not the madness itself. But it's, it's always and it's always different at scale, right? Like Etsy D is not that hard to deal with at a smaller scale, but at a larger scale, it's impossible. Um, and you know, instability becomes an issue with a lot of these these services as well. And so, it managed is is the key part of that, which is it's someone else's problem, and I'm solving this problem with money. Mm -hmm. And maybe Oracle's going to dust off Service Bus. 
<laughs> Didn't weren't they weren't they once had pub sub hubbub? Wasn't that a service bus? <laughs> So not really. The thing I liked about it was that, that you can not only your own services, services to discover, but you can also add in um, third-party services. If you, if you pay a, a vendor for a, for it to provide a service, you can add that to your local directory and you can still look up, um, just like you can with console, um, you know, uh, using DNS, the endpoints for some vendor service. So it sort of normalizes the way you discover all services, not just your own. Yeah, I thought that was cool too. That the part- partners are a part of it and all that. I wish that would be something Amazon would do with parameter stores. Is you know, as a marketplace vendor can actually define the parameter set tied to the marketplace object, and that way, if you're actually able to acquire it that way, you could pull it out of parameter store, which I think would be really cool. Well, Amazon did a slightly different thing, though. I mean, not so much the parameter store thing, but with with the event bridge, they're they're trying to give people a common way to exchange data between services, but but a different way. They're, they're, they're instead of trying to manage services from an endpoint perspective they're trying to manage services from a you know a schema and, and data perspective let's move on to uh, our friends at azure uh microsoft has acquired the 5g specialist affirmed networks uh, i thought they made mattresses apparently but they don't uh, they make fully virtualized cloud native networking solutions for telecom providers uh it's prim- primarily focused on 5g and edge computing which makes it an ideal acquisition for a large cloud provider looking to get deeper into the telco business uh, and there's a quote here from Yusuf Khalidi, Microsoft's Corporate Vice President for Azure Networking. As we've seen with other technology transformations, we believe that software can play an important role in helping advance 5G and deliver new network solutions that offer step change advance, advancements in speed, cost, and security. There is a significant opportunity for both incumbents and new players across the industry to innovate, collaborate, and create new markets serving the networking and edge computing needs of our mutual customers. Uh, which is a pretty big story about how they're going to start taking care of 5G and the edge. Now we can actually put I remember we were talking about what was that? What was that uh, contest that was going to happen where we were talking about AWS Outpost on a train? <laughs> remember that? I, I don't know. <laughs> there was something in one of our episodes, and now you can actually do it with Azure Edge and five G because you can you can get connectivity to it. That's true. But I think it. I think it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I mean, you could put these. Things now, uh, like whenever you're doing mobile, uh, like big projects where you're mobile, where you're setting up a temporary facility and going, you're not going to get your Direct Connect out there. You're not going to even get decent, uh, you know, wired connectivity. But how great if you could uh, roll your stuff in to collect tons of data, do tons of work uh, right there with 5G. Might be interesting. I mean, if they were first to market with it instead of third, then... I might be more excited, I guess, but you know, Amazon already partnered with Verizon to do and the Google, same thing. And Google partnered with uh, someone a couple weeks ago, Team AT and T. But did yeah. they integrate it with Output uh, with Outposts? No, not yet. But you know, it, that's the thing. That I thought was kind of cool. So I think Outpost is actually powering the five G offering. Was the way that yeah, I, I think that hearing it was because yeah. there's a lot of compute that's required for for five G, and I have a couple buddies that kind of work in the speed, and so like there's. Uh, a year ago or so, there was a l- very large push for trying to figure out how to make mobile compute, um, and so in order to offer this, and so it 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 has to go both ways, I would assume. So I think that you're right. I think you can do it much more mobile processing now. Yeah. Well, moving into uh, our next story, which dovetails quite nicely, Microsoft partners with the industry to unlock new 5G scenarios with the new Azure Edge Zone and the Azure Private Edge Zone. Uh, This is transformative advances to combine the power of Azure 5G 
carriers, technology partners with a preview of the Azure Edge and Azure Private Edge. Uh, this allows you to develop and distribute applications across cloud, on-premises, and edge using the same Azure portal, APIs, development, and security tools. Uh, you have local data processing for latency critical industrial IoT applications and medical services. Acceleration of IoT and artificial intelligence. New frontiers for developers working with high-density graphics and evolving platform built with customers, carriers, and industry partners to allow seamless integrations and operations of wide selection of virtual network functions, including 5G software and SD-WAN and firewalls. Uh, from technologies, partners such as Affirm, which I just bought. So, huh, so weird. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, these new zones will boost app performance, providing optimal user experience when running ultra-low latency-sensitive mobile apps and SIM-enabled architectures, including online gaming, remote meetings, and smart infrastructure. And the Azure Private Edge zones also now available in preview uh, offer a private 5G LTE network combined with Azure Stack Edge on-premises for your train uh, for ultra-low latency, secure, and high-bandwidth solutions for the organization to enable scenarios. So there you go. It's hard for me not to go back to the post-apocalyptic, you know, maybe it's just the times we were in, but like Snowpiercer and like in William Gibson, there's <laughs> there's the float, you know, like it's just a giant just trash island in the sea you know, it, with a community on it. So it's like, yeah, we'll be able to power all these things now. Fantastic. From the cloud. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, uh, there is a quote here in this article from Vinod Kumar, who's the CEO of Vodafone Business. By combining Vodafone 5G and mobile private networks with Azure Private Edge Zones, our customers will be able to run cloud applications on mobile devices with single-digit millisecond responsiveness. This is essential for autonomous vehicles and virtual reality services, for example, as these applications need to react in real time to deliver business impact. It will allow organizations to innovate and transform their operations, such as the way their employees work with virtual reality services, high-speed and precise robotics, and accurate computer vision for defect detection. Together, we expect Vodafone and Microsoft to provide our customers with the capabilities they need to create high-performing, innovative, and safe work environments. So there you go. Sounds sounds like a really cool future that we might never get to after COVID. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get there. Yeah, just going to look radically different, but we'll get there. It might, it might take a couple extra years to get there now, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, offloading compute to the cloud for autonomous vehicles bothers me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like I go around the corner sometimes and I lose my cell phone signal. So if I'm, my self-driving car is running on the Microsoft Azure, uh, you know, I go around, this, go around the corner or, you know, go down into a dip and all of a sudden I lose connectivity. What's going to happen? <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, I learned today that uh, apparently Boeing is telling people they need to reboot their 787 every 51 days yeah. uh, due to ghost uh, machine reading. So, I mean, if your 787 has to be rebooted, why doesn't your car? And, you know, connectivity is a thing, I guess. Yeah. Just, better, just better hope the uh, 787 isn't flying when it reaches its 51st day. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it depends how fast you can reboot and how much altitude you have. It, it might be okay. <laughs> they are really they are really heavy boxes in the sky. I don't I don't want to play with that game while I'm on it. <laughs> no, it'll notice. It's like Toy Story. Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. I'm not flying and I'm falling gracefully. <laughs> I think falling with style. Falling with style, that's right. <laughs> Uh, well, Microsoft announced uh, that they were seeing a 775% spike in cloud services traffic. Uh, this uh, apparently resulted in their stock uh, taking a pretty large increase uh, as people got pretty excited about how much growth they were seeing. Uh, and then they had to unfortunately come back and say, actually, that's only in Microsoft Teams and only in Italy, uh, which then required them to file an SEC filing, which uh, kids at home, this is why you should split out your cloud revenue from your other cloud revenue and not call them the same thing because it makes people confused and they assume what you said is something not what you actually said. Even 700%, like that, it, like that's a very large number of increase. And so like, what was it before? <laughs> 
again, if it's in Italy, like what? So 20 yeah. users were using it before COVID, and now like you know, basically seven times that is uh, you know, 300 users. So yeah, they're doing great in, in Italy. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they are. You know, overall, they are seeing pretty heavy increases in load. They've uh, there was some other article points in there about 30% growth and some of the other services for office 365 services, et cetera. But you know, it's definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, be careful how you, uh, put those press releases up there. Or so you might be filing an sec filing, uh, cause you just, you know, you, you lied to your investors on accident, which is never good. And then the uh, Azure Security Center has a new workflow automation uh, that is now generally available. We talked about this, I think, previously. Uh, but this is basically ability to automatically trigger logic apps and security alerts and recommendations. And manual triggers are available for alerts that and all recommendations that have the quick fix option available to you uh, now available. So when you see those people brute forcing your, your server, you can now block them at the firewall with an automatic trigger. You're welcome. See, it's so much fun. Making those things is so much fun. I think you watch too much of uh, hackers in the guy <laughs> on the skateboard with a with a trench coat, you know, going through the server racks. Is that is that what it is? In my head, it is, but uh, you know, unfortunately, there's the reality of I look nothing like that, and I've been in data centers; they look nothing like that. <laughs> when I when I decided that I I wanted to understand what threat hunting was, and I went and watched a bunch of YouTube videos on threat hunting techniques, I realized very quickly that I didn't want to be a threat hunter. Uh, so just go spend some time on YouTube, Brian. You'll you'll nip this right in the bud. I promise you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a very long history of of like going down rabbit holes of things that I think are fun and then only to discover they're not much fun. <laughs> nice. So uh, this, this will be yet another. Anything that you can make money doing pretty much falls into that category. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. <laughs> yeah. They, they say, you know, do what you love and you know it'll pay the bills. And it's like, no, no, but if I love it, I don't want to ruin it by making it a job. <laughs> we should get a new show title. Ryan Haxton Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Peter, well, why don't you take us to the lightning round? All right. Amazon managed Cassandra service now helps you automate the creation and management of resources using AWS CloudFormation. Oh, great. Another service I've got to tell developers to stop using as a message queue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just give him the point. I can't. Yeah. I, can't uh, I, can do it. I don't think yeah. I can top that. I don't think I can top that. <laughs> Go ahead, just put it in. Put it in there. Yeah, yeah, give it yeah. a point. <laughs> All right. Anyone else? No, no, I'm not even, I can't even touch that. AWS Systems Manager announces enhanced AWS Resource Groups view. Just one more way to tell you that your document failed with a weird cryptic error message that Jonathan has to troubleshoot. Uh, you know, I, 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 I was trying to troubleshoot the thing with automation for Systems Manager. I was like, why isn't it running the rest of my steps? I mean, so he goes to step 10 and it just disappears. No, it's just some, some crappy UI thing. Like, they only show 10 in the, in the pane, and you've got to click like a, the next arrow to go to the next 10. It was like, it had me going for hours trying to figure out what was wrong with the thing. I hate Amazon's UI. Jonathan, it's called Lightning Round. <laughs> Call Lightning well, round. I've already won. This is like my victory lap. <laughs> AWS Cost Explorer now offers savings plans recommendations for linked accounts. A feature that only the partners can love because now they can use this to make recommendations to all their payers uh, that are paying their bills through their partner. Yeah, anything about savings, I'm, I'm out. I'm about spending <laughs> All money. Amazon Chime meetings now support up to 250 attendees. So, I mean, their employee population of 80,000 people can now run 320 simultaneous meetings and cover the entire population of employees. Perfect. Ooh, good math. <laughs> yeah, you got you to just imagine the product meeting of this. Like, well, I can get you 250. 
<laughs> not quite. Not quite. Not quite there. But yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. This is the first feature they rolled out after COVID. Was We're going to up the limit from 50 to 250, so you're welcome. Yeah, but this is 250 attendees who can interact with the, with the entire meeting, though. It's not like Zoom where you, you can have like a massive, um, like a, a telecast kind of thing with hundreds and hundreds of people on, but they're not interactive participants. So, um, oh, yeah, w- webinar features versus meeting features are two different things. Yeah. So, yeah. AWS Toolkit for Visual Studio Code now supports AWS Step Functions. Slide to the left. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I got the visual on that. Yep. That <laughs> AWS Storage Gateway adds audit logs for File Gateway to address enterprise compliance requirements. I mean, anybody who's accessing their files through an Amazon storage gateway deserves to be audited. <laughs> Ooh. Perhaps by should have saved that for next week. A medical professional. <laughs> <laughs> I just love these features that are obviously because we had to, <laughs> which is just very obvious. <laughs> yeah. Some customers I, said they had to have it for compliance. Darn it! Yeah. I'd like yeah. to store a hundred petabytes in S3, but you don't have this feature. Yeah. Simplify cloud resource management with AWS Service Management Connector for Jira Service Desk. Only to be usurped next week by Service Catalog for Jira. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> close second, yeah. Justin. Close second with strong finish. But I gotta give it to Jonathan. Yeah, uh, that was. I, oh, yeah. If you had to give it to Jonathan, I would have protested for him. <laughs> <laughs> That first one, that was that was a good one. I really enjoyed that. Thank one. you very much. I'll be talking about that a little while later. Yeah. So. That was literally my first thought, though. It wasn't. It wasn't just a gag. It's literally my first thought yeah. after seeing the things that people do with like with MongoDB. <laughs> awesome. It's funny because it's true. Yeah. It is funny and sad all at the same time. Well, uh, again, we're you know things aren't coming up very soon because uh, no one's going anywhere. But uh, there are a couple of things we thought we'd share with you here in the community. The first one is the allthetalks.online, uh, which is going to be an online conference uh, for DevOps development and security professionals. Uh, John Allspaugh this morning got, is going to be speaking at part of it, and they're still looking for other additional speakers. But it'll be 24 hours of virtual uh, conferences. This is all for fundraising to help out with uh, all the COVID research. And so this is a great thing to do. You can go register for free if you want to, or you can donate like I did uh, and throw them a little bit of money to say, hey, this is awesome. And then I'm going to check out John Allspot's talk when he does it, whenever that is. Uh, so definitely check that out. I'm sure they'll be online available to you after the fact if you don't want to stay up all 24 hours, because I won't do that, uh, but others will. And then the other thing I found for you guys is a plural site for the month of April is offering you the entire plural site catalog uh, for free. So if you are unemployed suddenly, uh, unexpectedly, and you're looking for some additional training to help beef up your skills, check out pluralsite.com. Uh, they have free training for you available, and they are some of the best online training I've seen. So definitely check that out as well. Anything for you guys that you want to share? I just want to survive the next month. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, I did. I did get uh, the stickers out for Ryrana One's uh, Twitter follower thing. I, I went to the post office yesterday. I braved the COVID. I got yelled at for standing too close to the post office employee. Uh, it was all good, but uh, I did ship them off to the world. Uh, just so you guys know, shipping internationally is expensive. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was all good. It was good for the fans and all that. But uh, they are getting a special treat. Uh, which is our brand new Lambda Spackle sticker, which we redesigned that you can find on the cloudpod.net website. Uh, 
uh, in the merchandise section. So they are getting a free version of that because they contributed to following Ryron, and that is a special reward that they got as well as one of our fantastic CloudPod pins. Uh, but if you go to the cloudpod.net and hit our merchandise link, uh, there is a fantastic Lambda Spackle sticker uh, that is a brainchild of Jonathan and I and Ryan. Uh, many, many moons with a lot of liquor in our bodies that uh, <laughs> you know, every time you go to customer support uh, at Amazon Web Services and say, hey, this isn't worth it, say, well, you know, you could just use Lambda to make that happen for you. And then yeah. we call that Lambda Spackle. And so we've uh, now convivorated that in a can that uh, of Lambda Spackle for you with the CloudPod logo on it available to you on the website. So do <laughs> go sign up for that. Uh, and we will donate some percentage of that profits of that to uh, COVID-19 as well. So definitely go out there and do that. That's why it's a little bit expensive. So I don't want to hear people tweet at me. Why is it $15? It's $15 because we're giving profits to uh, charity. I, I found that I couldn't unfollow myself and then follow myself just to get a sticker. So I, I was automatically ruled out of the contest. It's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, that's like the opposite of being John Malkovich and following yourself. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Not being Ryron Uh You know, the other thing, I woke up this morning, I got on my Twitter app and it said, you know, today's your Twitter birthday. And I said, oh, and it said, you've been on Twitter for 13 years. So... Uh, apparently that's a long time and I, I don't even know when I signed up for Twitter originally. That feels like a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know Twitter was a thing 13 years ago. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think I signed up for it and never really used it. And then I've only really started using it the last two or three years. Um, so my Twitter followers are not as big as I'd like them to be either, but, uh, getting bigger over all the time. So again, I've just had an idea for a, a cool service actually, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the late comers to any kind of platform, whether it's Gmail or Twitter or anything else, they always end up with crappy usernames, you know, Jay Broadley 59342. Mm -hmm. or, and, uh, oh, actually, there's only there's only one other Jay Broadley in the world, and he's a professor in the East Coast. So yeah. he and I don't typically fight out because I'm the only techie person. <laughs> but wouldn't it be cool to have a service <laughs> that you register with, and then whenever there's a new service online available, they automatically register you you first to get the uh, the good usernames? That would be cool. That would be really oh. awesome. Yeah, we could fix, it, totally, it, we I, could totally fix that with Lambda. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, I take it back. As I, if I just said that there's only one other Jay Broadley, there is actually a Jay Broadley who's an adult on the East Coast. And then my brother, who lives in Seattle, he also is Jay Broadley as well. So he always uh, loses out on all of my, my email addresses because I got them all first. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the <oldest>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. All right, guys. Well, I hope you survive another week in quarantine, and uh, we will talk to you next week here at the Cloud Pod. Yep. See all right. See you then. All right. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Check out our website, the home of the CloudPod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag the CloudPod.